uh, you can open to John 1. Before we read the text, uh, I just want to approach God together in prayer, asking, uh, asking him to do what only he can do. There's really, really good news before us today uh, for every single one of us. There's good news, not good advice, um, not a pep talk per se, but uh, good accomplished news before us. But just as we're going to see John the Baptist needed the Father to reveal it to him, so we need God to reveal it to us. So let's come before God. Uh, We only come before him right now because he made a way in Christ. Let's come before him. Jesus, no one loves your church like you. You loved your church and you gave yourself up for her. You chose her and you don't choose your mind about your choices. And so, Lord, pray with Apostle Paul that you would direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, Lord, none of our ways are hidden before you. You know what this last week was like. You know that we all stumble in a variety of ways. You know us, and so before you, nothing is hidden. But because of Christ, we have great hope. Because of the love of God you've shown, we can know we're loved. And not just one time, but because of the steadfastness, the unwavering, unchanging nature of who Christ is and what he has done, we can come before you. What a privilege, God, to be able to come to you, the God of the universe. Please show us Christ. Let us behold him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. John 1, verse 29 through 34. This is God's word, breathed out by his spirit. Hear it. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Well, there's a famous story of Charles Spurgeon, uh, that Victorian preacher who was going to preach at a new place at the Crystal Palace. And uh, we don't often think about this, but voice amplification has only been around uh, in the past century. So he was going to preach at a new place called the Crystal Palace to over 23,000 people were going to be in this place. So he decided to do a sound check a few days before. Spurgeon, uh, it's hilarious, actually. In some of his writings, uh, he says that certain men who have slender chests probably aren't called to the ministry because they won't be able to project the word of God. Um, And so uh, 
So that gives some hope to the big boned among us uh, that maybe God has called us for a special purpose, Spurgeon himself being a rather uh, rotund guy. Uh, But he went to the sound check a few days before and he got up to see where he should have his platform, this enormous place. And he got up and he spoke one sentence and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And people could hear it, who tested, and he came back and days later preached to 23,000 people. But what's astonishing about this story isn't that he would preach to 23,000 people, but that years later, a man on his deathbed would tell the story of his conversion. How, as a janitor at the Crystal Palace, while Uh, Just doing his normal work, he heard a thundering voice proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in hearing it, he himself was able to behold and trust in God's Lamb who would take his sin away. And I love that story of Spurgeon. I love so many stories of Spurgeon. It's a beautiful story of how one person gets saved. But what I hope beyond all hope this morning, perhaps God would save some today. Yes, absolutely. But as I, as I discovered afresh this week in study, that we would know this isn't just a text of how someone gets saved But is our continual hope as Christians good news not for us 20 years ago, but good news for us today? And it can be good news for us tomorrow. And there is no other place that we're to go. So we're going to behold the Lamb of God together. And as we do that, I pray that God would take whatever weights and burdens are on your back, however you come in here today. So walk with me through this text as we behold the Lamb of God. First, see him. Behold the Lamb of God bearing sin. In the first appearance of Jesus in the narrative... Apart from the prologue, apart from that beautiful, almost poetic description of what God was, the prologue uh, had the word who was in the beginning, the word who became flesh, and all these things. Now we are in the narrative, in the actual life of Jesus, and here he appears on the scene for the first time, and as he appears, we see him first as the Lamb of God. Here is the end of the story at the beginning. We see Jesus and we know from John the Evangelist that this Jesus will be a crucified Messiah. John, who sees him, is the one who's deflected attention away from himself constantly, as we saw last week. Are you, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you the Messiah? No. The one who has given one word negative answers now speaks and pours forth speech and he says this, the one who has always deflected attention from himself says this, behold, look, fix your attention on this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first command as Jesus approaches is behold. Notice this isn't even John going towards Jesus, but Jesus comes toward him as it always happens. And he says, behold. So often as we think of coming to God, we fill our minds with a million things we should do. And as we drive to church, we think over the things we should have done this week. And the ways this morning, what we should have done. I should have gotten up earlier. 
I shouldn't have watched that last night. I should give more money during the offering. I should be more loving. I need to get serious about my faith. But as Jesus comes near us, John says, Behold. Be quiet. Stop all your excuses. Behold him. And please, church, do this this morning. Don't assume you already know this. Or this is the way you got saved. So now this morning, what you need is 10 tips or new spiritual practices to grow as a Christian. Stop. Behold the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what are we to understand by this title? We live in an originally established Christian nation that has been using this language, Lamb of God, for a long time. So it doesn't shock us at first. But when you really think about it, a Lamb of God, what are we to understand by that? Well, the image of Lamb is... uh, shows up throughout the Old Testament. We see all kinds of different lambs in the Old Testament, and each one is uh, connected to sacrifice in a way. So let me remind you or tell you for the first time about some of these lambs in the Old Testament. The first we have is a Passover lamb. God wanted to take his chosen people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt. He wanted to take Jews out of the land of Egypt, and so he sent Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, let my people go, and Pharaoh would not let him go, and so God eventually sent plagues, and on the final plague, God said, okay, fine, have it your way, I'm going to get them out of Egypt, and he he said he was going to send a destroyer angel who would kill the firstborn of every household. But God said, if anyone takes a spotless lamb and he kills it and he puts the blood on the doorpost of his house, then by the blood of the lamb, God will pass over that house and the firstborn will be spared. Later on in Exodus, once God had rescued his people out of the land of Egypt, he instructed them uh, to give the lamb a perpetual sacrifice. This is what's known as the perpetual lamb uh, that are in the morning and evening sacrifices in Exodus 29. God said this after he had redeemed his people. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And in Leviticus, we know that uh, the, entire, the entire community is going to be around the place of sacrifice. This place of sacrifice is going to be centered in the community. And so a lamb is offered in the morning, and a lamb is offered at night to represent, to present, to, that God would pass over, not judge people according to their sin, but in the place of them, a lamb would be sacrificed. And so at all hours of every day, the people would be able to look into the center of the camp and see smoke rising and know there's a lamb that represents me. I just, I just snapped at my kids. There's a lamb that represents me. I, I coveted. I am not, there's a lamb that represents me. Not only is there a Passover lamb and a perpetual lamb, but there's the suffering servant lamb of Isaiah 53. In this, we're told of a suffering servant who would come on whom God would lay sins and iniquity and that he would be pierced and crushed for our sins and our transgressions and that by his wounds we would be healed Isaiah 53, 7, we read this. The suffering servant was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. 
so we open not his mouth. And we also know of the, the first sacrificial lamb that appears in Genesis 22, where Abraham was called by God to offer up his firstborn son, Isaac, his one son, his only son, whom he loved. And by faith, Abraham went. And Isaac at one point said, Father, I I see, behold, I see the fire, the wood for the fire. I see we have a knife, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham in faith turned to him, knowing the character of his God who had called him and said, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And lambs keep showing up throughout the Old Testament. We're wondering what's going on here. And as we heard last week, we know the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of lambs, they could never take away the sins of humanity. That thing itself actually didn't take my sin away. So what's going on throughout all of this? What we see in the words of John the Baptist, that all of those types and all of those shadows of lambs are now applied to this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And as we consider that, we need to recognize at the outset that this flattens. If you truly understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God, this flattens our wrong ways of relating to God. Historically, people have uh, summed up the two false ways that Scripture condemns of relating to God as legalism and antinomianism. Legalism says this, that it's the quality of my sacrifice for God that determines my nearness and my closeness and the quality of my relationship with him. It is by my keeping of the law that I am kept near to God. It is by my sacrifice for him that I am made right with him. Famous Dutch theologian from the last century said this, Gerhardus Voss, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law. Something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Legalism says, I'll obey to be able to get the love of God. I'll obey so I can be accepted by him. But what we see in Jesus, the Lamb of God, is it's not your sacrifice for him but this is his lamb given for you. Jesus is not the lamb we bring to God. Jesus is not the sum of our personal times in his word. It's not how extreme our lifestyle is for God. Jesus is God's lamb given to us. Stop. Behold him. This is not legalism, neither is it antinomianism, which is a famous, or not a famous, but rather a complex word for a simple thing, which means uh, to abuse the law. It's to say that God's moral law, his commands, have no place in the Christian life anymore. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully points out a way that this appears in life today. He says this, practical antinomianism, anti meaning against, Nomian has to do with law, against the law, has many forms today. One of them is the secular gospel of self-acceptance, masquerading as Christianity. It says, since God accepts me the way I am, I ought not to get straightjacketed by the law of God. What God wants is that I be myself. No, I actually have good news for you. He doesn't want you to stay exactly as you are. The grace of God does not leave us where he finds us. He is the lamb of God and he came to take away the sin of the world. The grace of God in Jesus Christ 
is the answer to both of these false gospels. It is no good news at all that I am made right with God by how I can obey him. Because none of us can perfectly obey him. And it is not good news that God wants nothing to do with my life now. I can live however I want because I don't know the best way to live. I've met a train wreck of my life apart from God. I can't fix myself. The solution for my problems are not found in me. No, he's the lamb God has provided for you, not yours for him. And he has come not to leave you as you are, but to truly take away your sin. This lamb takes away the sin of the world. And these words, they were penned to disarm us of every excuse we would have. As Jesus is put forth as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do we find here? We find every sin without distinction. It doesn't matter if it's gossip or adultery, pornography or anger, covenant or pride, idolatry or tax fraud, even the sin of unbelief. The first time or the hundred thousandth time. Every sin without distinction of every person without distinction, Jew or Gentile, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, upper class, lower class, conservative or progressive, at every stage of the Christian life, those with previous Bible knowledge or without, this lamb takes away the sin of all who would come to Christ, of all who would believe on him that would turn from their sin and false trust and trust in God's lamb to take away their sins. I remember in high school, uh, I had a litany of sins that I knew I had done. And I had this other class. (laughs) It was one thing in particular. Maybe you have that thing. I remember meeting with a guy who was uh, trying to share the gospel with me, and I told him, you know, I believe God can forgive all of my sins, but this, this was wrong. Like, this, I knew exactly what I was doing, and it was sneaky, and it was underhanded, and it's disgusting, and if people found out what I did, no. And worst of all, I was a Christian already, supposedly. So I know God can forgive me of all my sin, but this sin, why would he forgive that? And he looked at me and he said, that's exactly the sin Christ came to die for. It wasn't just the sin you committed ignorantly. It wasn't the sin you committed because you didn't know better. It's a sin you committed as a Christian, knowing all of what you should do in full rebellion against God. That's the sin Christ came to die for. So you, you can tell me what sin he can't forgive you of, and I'll tell you, no, come to him, because that is exactly the one he came for. Maybe that's the only sin you truly understand you've committed. lamb takes away the sin of the world but do you really understand he takes it away now this isn't a one time slate cleaning and now keep up the good work as if we come to Christ and all of us have a filthy chalkboard and Christ takes it and he dips the chalkboard in his blood and it washes it away and it's like brand new There is not even a sight of chalk on it. And he gives it back to us. He says, now keep up the good work. No. Christ takes that chalkboard and he breaks it over his knee. And he touches our heart, which is stone, and he makes it flesh. He says, you'll never die again. And from this point forward, you start to look more like me. 
And it's going to take a lifetime. But you have been justified before God. You are being sanctified to look more like him. And you will be glorified. You will look like him one day. Jesus Christ on the cross will take the sin, all of the sin of those who would believe definitively, definitively in a moment. On the cross, it's why he is able to proclaim, it is finished. In a moment, definitively taken, sins of all those who would believe, past, present, future. And that definitive moment is that which will continue to be our strength and our joy and our plea. So what am I saying? This is what I'm trying to say. It's what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10. He's talking about the old sacrificial system, the perpetual sacrifices of lamb, the day of atonement. He says this, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They were only a shadow. They were only a type of what was to come in Christ. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So maybe you're asking yourself, if, if he took away my sin, then why do I still struggle with sin? And that should, for every rational person in this room, be a valid question. Because there is no one in here who does not struggle with sin. Okay? That is a satanic lie. There are no perfected Christians who do not struggle with sin today. There is none. So, but Christ took away my sin. Why do I still struggle? Too often we think he took my sin away. I guess what Travis is talking about right now is an evangelistic sermon. And so I can tune out. Well, this is an evangelistic sermon in terms of evangelic. Euangelion means good news. This is good news for everybody. This is good news for all of us. Okay, it says this. He has, by a single offering, his death on the cross perfected for all time. That you are justified in a moment. By the blood of Christ. By your simply, simply trusting in what he has done for you. A single offering perfected forever. Who? Who does, who does that single offering perfect for all time? Those who are being sanctified. So, fellow struggler in the gospel, we continue to sin as believers. And yet, it'll wound our conscience. It'll make us cry out with Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this? Why do I keep doing that which I don't want to do? And it'll eventually lead us to be able to say with him, because of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. The single offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that offering, that Lamb of God, continues to be the perpetual standing in our place. Jesus is simultaneously the suffering servant on whom all the wrath of our sins fell. That like a lamb was led to the slaughter, so he went to the slaughter for us in a moment, and he too is the perpetual lamb that was offered daily 
what are you going to bring to God other than the Lamb of God? Daily we bring ourselves to Him and say, you are what save me, you are what continues to save me. Look, very simply, do you believe you just needed a second chance or that you needed from start to finish a Savior? Do you believe that you needed to hear the gospel, get a little cleaned up, and now you live better? Or did you believe that you didn't need a second chance, you needed a new life? with power that's not your own, and righteousness you could never earn, and love you didn't deserve. If you're in that place, you're, you're in that place, you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that poverty of spirit. And the Lord Jesus looks you in the eyes and said, are you poor in spirit? You are blessed. The kingdom of God is for you. Do you know what John is going to say the next day when he sees Jesus again? Behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't say, behold my new moral example. Though Christ is that for us, he says, behold the Lamb of God. So we are justified in a moment, made perfect, all of our sin imputed to Christ and all of his righteousness imputed onto us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justified, saved from the penalty of sin. And now we are being sanctified, being made more holy. Positionally, we are in Christ And practically, we are being made more like him. His kingdom is here, but not fully. It has started, but it's not yet completely here. So we're being made more like Jesus, and yet we do have indwelling sin. And we will continue to sin until we are glorified. Do you know when we will be glorified? When we see Christ return, or we go home to be with him. So now the sanctifying work of Christ is that by his cross, we are being saved by the, from the power of sin. Definitively, if you are a Christian, you are not a slave to sin. And you are being saved from the power of it. And as I said, we will be glorified. And on the day we are glorified, then we shall be saved from the presence of sin. So are you seeing the good news for us? All of us who continue to struggle, continue to sin, are being made more like him but more slowly than I would ever want? The cross is still the way to God. And hear what he does though. This is how God in Christ sees you. Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You tell one one person, start running east and never stop. And you tell another person, start running west and never stop. Your sins are removed that far from each other. It's what would lead, lead someone to write these words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Please just say, who is this man? Who is this lamb? John continues in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is Jesus. Here is high Christology in just a few words. After me comes a man. 
Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, of the Virgin Mary. He's a man who walked this earth. But John said, he who ranks before me. He's better than me. He's greater than me. Now, historically, the way one prophet is better than another prophet is like they have a greater quantity of miracles. Why is Elijah so great? Because he did so much cool stuff, right? But John, John says, not because he does more than me, because he was before me. John here might be speaking better than he knows, but he's speaking truly. He's of a different quality and essence. He's the eternal son of God. And we get a glimpse into that as we behold the Lamb of God baptized. John 1.31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John recounts the baptism of Jesus, and we find two things. One, he didn't grasp Jesus' identity. But in his baptism, he gets a glimpse of the triune God of the universe in action. And secondly, that John came to prepare Israel by baptism for a greater baptism. In John's gospel, John the Baptist, he emphasizes that he didn't know who Jesus was, which is kind of comical as we put together the other Gospels, because we know that Jesus was one of his cousins. No, John, you knew him for a long time. In the womb, you heard heard that, uh, that Jesus was coming to the world, and you leapt. Before you could understand words, you understood, it appears. But he says, no, twice, I did not know him. Though they were cousins, he's astonished at the reality of who Jesus is. And here, again, we see an an attestation to the truth that it's not our willpower, it's not our knowledge, it's not our crazy lifestyle for God that reveals to us who Jesus is. It's the Father. And this is a humble invitation to all in this church. If you've been here for a long time, but you're realizing you haven't actually understood the grace of God. Amnesty is proclaimed for you. There should never be a person who says, I've been coming too long, so people are going to realize I'm a sinner if I go for it and need prayer for the sin I commit. I've been here so long, I never understood who Jesus is. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, says, I didn't know him. And I was living the craziest lifestyle for God you can imagine. I was surviving on bugs and eating wild honey. And people probably looked at John and John the Baptist said, look how much he loves Jesus. And he says, I didn't realize who he was. I didn't realize John, he didn't even want to baptize Jesus. But then Jesus said to him in Matthew 3, no, it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. Which here, let me just point out, we don't need just the death of Jesus. We need his life too. Because he lived a perfect righteous life to give to us as a gift of, uh, a gift by grace of righteousness. So Jesus is baptized into the same water in which sinners have gone down into to leave their sins. Realize every person that was baptized by John should have gone because they're like, yeah, I'm a wretch. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a thief. I need to change my ways. I, I'm an adulterer. I, I idolize other things. I've worshipped other gods. And so they would go down and symbolically try to leave their sins in the water and prepare themselves for the coming of God. And Jesus is baptized into that water. The one who has no sin 
is baptized into the sin of the world. He isn't being baptized because he needs to be cleansed of sin. He's being baptized because he's going to take ours. And as he's baptized, the heavens split. And the spirit descends from heaven like a dove and remains on him. Which is unique. And the father proclaims to him, to John the Baptist, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Heaven opens and the voice of the father is heard. The spirit descends upon Jesus and remains on him. Do you see what's going on here? First, from Genesis to Revelation, creation to recreation, every act of God is a triune act. We're to understand it's not as if God was the Father in the Old Testament and Jesus in the Gospels, and now today we have the Holy Spirit. No, that's, that's a heresy known as modalism. That the triune God has forever existed. And it is beyond our full grasp and comprehension, but as we see it in action, it's beautiful. No, in beauty overflowing, God is one being in three persons. And so in the baptism of Jesus, we see the Father speak of his pleasure of the Son and in the Son. And the Spirit pointing out and abiding on Jesus. Secondly, we have a glimpse into the Father's speaking and into the Spirit's presence. Isn't this what we want? Fascinatingly, there's three times in the Gospels where we hear the audible voice of the Father. He says twice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He says that the baptism and the transfiguration. And once he says, I have, as Jesus cries out to him to glorify his name, as he's dreading what will be coming at the cross, He says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. You see what's going on here? The Father speaks and he says, I want you to behold my son. Look to him. I love him. Obey him. And who among us would not want to know the presence of the Spirit? And we ask, where do we get the Spirit? Well, John tells us Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Which is to say this is not a baptism like John's, of preparation, of behavioral change, but it's a baptism into new life. A baptism into the very Spirit of God. And it too is given without distinction. He died for the sins of the world. He takes away. So also it says in the present tense, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Just as Jesus takes away the sins of the world without distinction and still does that to this day, so he also baptizes with the Holy Spirit without distinction and empowers people with his Spirit to this day. The one who gives the Spirit and forgives sin is one and the same. John finishes. He says this. Behold the Lamb of God and bear witness. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God of God. We've seen him bear sin. We've seen him baptized. And now we behold him and we are to bear witness. So what do we take from all this? Well, first we need to recognize beholding comes before bearing witness. That's what John says. I've seen him and have borne witness. Before he could tell you a lot of things about who Jesus was. He says, no, now I've beheld him 
this is who he truly is. In love, in love as one who has known the way of opening the Bible and only ever finding heavy weights laid upon me, of dreading the fact that I felt like I could never live up to God's standard for me, let me suggest to you that if you're burned out in your Christian life, if you find yourself weary and heavy laden, you haven't come to the one who takes away your greatest burden. Or you thought that was the way to kickstart your Christian life. You've abandoned your first love. Either way, the solution is the same. Come to Christ in the poverty of spirit you are in and experience the unfair, unearned, lavish grace of God who gave the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Come to him. Behold him. Don't say, well, I got to do... Behold him. God won't love me unless I look at the love of God made manifest for you. And then open your mouth as one who found unearned, unfair grace. Secondly, we need to know we have the empowering of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 tells us. Romans 8 verse 9. If if someone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But we're leaking vessels who must behold the glory of God and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's the Spirit who continually makes our hearts alive by being able to see Christ. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John's gospel, this is one of the things, this is what the Spirit is going to do. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So if you're a Christian, hear this and be empowered by the Spirit. Heaven is yours by the grace of God. God is your father. Christ is your brother. Every believer is your brother and sister too. Your sins are cast into the heart of the sea. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is alive in you. And you are no longer a slave to sin. And the Lord Jesus is coming back for you. Does that put hope in your heart? Does that fill you with joy? That sounds like the work of the Holy Spirit to me. Taking what Jesus told us and breathing it into our hearts. Bearing witness with our spirits. All these things the Spirit testifies to our spirit. And so we're empowered and we don't lose heart. Lastly, we need to know we have the good news that Jesus is different than people think. He is the Son of God. People really don't believe this. To believe this is to embrace Christ. So if you don't embrace Christ, you just simply don't believe he's the Son of God. If he's just the greatest philosopher who ever lived, that's neat. And maybe I'll get around to reading his work one day. If he's just a pathway of God that I can take, I'll consider that, kind of weigh my options. If he's a kind and loving friend, I'll definitely come to him on hard days. But if the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is none other than the precious Son of God, the one whom the Father has loved before time began. If that is who was given for me, that's the one 
who was crushed for my sins? What does that demand of me? I can't think, I can't help but think of another hymn. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Which is to say, if I had created everything in the universe and could give it back to God, it wouldn't be enough. But then we remember, it wasn't what we gave to God but it was God's lamb given to us. And so we go and we tell everyone we know, the son of God was given for you. The lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. We are what Martin Luther called beggars. One beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. It's good news. Let's pray. God, as we behold you, Well, we know it's not our sacrifice for you. It, it was your sacrifice for us. And if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how could we doubt, God, that you would not give us all that is good and all that we need? And so, Lord, we don't look to anything but the Son of God given for us to know the love of God. Father, we ask that as we behold you, it just naturally give way to worship. We ask that we could all come out as as the sinners we are. That because of the Lamb of God, we wouldn't be afraid to confess our sin and trust in you. That we wouldn't stay in any, any trust that could never save us. Thank you, God, that you gave your son for us. Would we behold you and bear witness? You are the son of God. In Christ's name, amen.